The reading is from Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become among you, become great among you, must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Our passage today will take us up to the start of Jesus's very last week on earth. A week later, he will have suffered, died, and have been raised from the dead. So it's not surprising that uh, we have before us in Matthew twenty seventeen. if you'd like to turn to it, the third major statement by Jesus of his mission. Something he has stressed before as must happen, but now he stresses that it will happen and he is to be betrayed and turned over to be crucified. And then we have a biblical example of a tiger mum in her action of wanting her boys to have prime seats at the top table next to Jesus when he reigns in his kingdom. And finally, the chapter is rounded off with these two blind beggars who have their sight restored. A physical illustration of what Jesus hopes will have happened intellectually 
as those who hear his teaching and see his miracles realise who Jesus is and what he's come to do and they resolve to follow him. I spoke with someone last week who had had to go into hospital at very short notice, as an emergency in fact. And although he was not unfamiliar with such trips into hospital, on this occasion he was anxious. In fact, very anxious. At times like that we have to think our way out of such feelings which underlie our fear of death. So how does Jesus help? Well, Jesus again predicts his suffering, death and resurrection and adds some further significant details here. In Matthew 16, 21, the very first time he uh, spelt out his mission statement, just after Peter's confession that he was the Christ, we have his first enunciation of his purpose in life. Jesus, we read, began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then we have the second major prediction in Matthew 17, 22 and 23, where he says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. So here Jesus identifies himself with the Son of Man, the divine visitor to earth, written about by the prophets Daniel and Ezekiel, 500 years before. And we also learn how he is going to end up in the hands of the religious establishment. It will be, he says, by betrayal. At the time, the Jewish population of Jerusalem was probably around 80 to 100,000. But during the Passover feast, hundreds of thousands from the Jewish diaspora, the Jewish emigration to around the Mediterranean basin and countries beyond. Even India at that time had synagogues, would you believe? Tacitus, the first century Roman historian, recorded that Jerusalem had 600,000 men, women and children in a country of three to four million inhabitants when it was Passover. The pilgrims would camp out on the Mount of Olives overlooking the old city and at the bottom of the mount was the Garden of Gethsemane where the olive plantation was which provided shade in the heat of the day. So how were the authorities going to find Jesus in the dark amongst hundreds of thousands of campers? Well, the answer Get someone on the inside to lead you to the spot where Jesus and his disciples would be camping. And so for 30 silver coins, Judas betrayed Jesus' location. From this passage, 17 to 19, we glean the method of death for the first time, crucifixion, 
a particularly excruciating form of execution practised by the Romans. And since only the Roman authorities could authorise capital punishment, we realise why having condemned him, the religious leaders had to hand him over, as Jesus predicted, to the Gentiles, verse 19, to be crucified. Now, why is it that Jesus had to die? Well, as God said to Adam, if you sin, you will die. Death is the termination of a relationship with God. There's no place in paradise for sin or sinners. Sin is alien to God. In one sense, he has to exclude it as a moral pollutant. And in another sense, it is punishment for the crime. In dying in our place, he deals with the barrier between us and him. Looking at it one way, God's justice is satisfied by the sentence being served by another. Looking at it another way, but just as true, the contamination that we have is removed. The Bible calls these two things propitiation and expiation. Jesus' death enables both to take place. God is able to forgive because his justice has been satisfied and he's able to let us near him because the toxic consequences of sin have been sanitised. And why the resurrection? Well, first, justice for Jesus. Jesus was perfect. He didn't deserve to die. So God reversed men's verdicts on Jesus from condemnation to his verdict, which was vindication. He is rightly raised to life. And then secondly, it is for our benefit because it provides us with an evidence-based faith. How else would we know that God had accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf? Tim Keller, a former philosophy professor and pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, has written, If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Now we looked last week at the life of Joseph, a life that seemed to be going all wrong. God's plans of trying to turn a little group, of uh, a little clan really, of 70 people into a nation from which the saviour of the world would eventually come, looked like it was being destroyed by famine. But they weren't. God's man got into the right place at just the right time to save them. And so too now with Jesus. He died. It looks a failure, but he died so that our sins could be settled. And he rose that we might know that it worked. We can now live at peace with God as a consequence. Well, I trust you'll enjoy studying this passage in your next online house group gathering 
in the run-up to Easter. Well, now the tiger mum, 20 to 28 of chapter 20. Of course, you know what a tiger mum is. She's a mother who has great plans for her children. They are to rise to the top of the class. They are to get the very best results and get into the top universities, to get onto a graduate training scheme for the top professions. They originate from the East, but you can find them now almost anywhere in the world. Well, James and John's mum saw that Jesus was gathering a very significant following. And she thought he was heading for great things, for success. And she wanted her boys to share in that glory. Grant, verse 21, she says, that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. They were places of honour. Jesus, of course, realises that she's no idea what she's asking. And he responds, as he often does, to people who are really uh, got no idea, with a question. Verse 22, he says to her, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Now the cup stood for the outpouring of God's wrath on human sin. The innocent afflicted have, of course, cried out to God for justice, and God is a God of justice, and he has to act. But that means that everyone, all of us, none of us, no one who has ever lived is completely squeaky clean. We need to be, we'd be washed away from the presence of God, except for one thing. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? What Jesus is saying is that he's going to suffer God's just punishment for sin. And actually, his followers like James and John will suffer too. Not in the sense of them paying the price for sin, but as a consequence of following Jesus. And it is the Father, he points out, who bestows the position of honour in the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's not just the tiger mum's ignorance displayed here, but the other disciples too. They'd mistakenly thought that given that Jesus could still storms instantly by a word of command, walk on water, raise the dead, that he'd be easily able to trounce any opposition, whether from the Jewish establishment or whether from the might of Rome. But that was not how the divine Son of Man, with the authoritative title King of the Jews, was going to bring about salvation. No, it was taking on board the role of the suffering servant. He was going to let them kill him. The Son of Man, he says, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. His death would be the payment that bought the hostages their freedom. They thought unpaid leave or a work furlough was an investment in future benefits, like the unpaid intern 
hoping for a long-term lucrative career. They were wrong. And it would take the events of Good Friday, of Easter Sunday, and the explanation Jesus gave to them in the six weeks between the resurrection and the ascension, for them to grasp it, for them to understand it. And then this is what the miracle of the two blind men receiving their sight is meant to illustrate. These guys were probably in Jericho because Jericho had an abundant supply of balsam and balsam was used to make a beneficial eye ointment in the first century. These guys had lived in the dark. Now they can see. It was not a gradual improvement in sight, but an instant supernatural intervention, a miracle with plenty of witnesses around. So who has the power to do that? Well, the answer is the divine visitor. And what's it saying? It's saying that Jesus gives illumination. Jesus allows, gets, allows people to see. He enlightens them. So as we close, a few points to consider. First one. There will this week be those who will have stopped pretending they are immortal. On Monday or Tuesday on The One Show on BBC One, they had a Dr Sarah Jarvis on. She explained why the government had put us into lockdown. She said, 18 days ago, we had the first COVID-19 death. 13 days ago, we had 100 deaths. Three days later, 200 deaths. Three days after that, 400 deaths. At that rate, doubling every three days, as had been happening in Italy... She said quite starkly, in two weeks we could have 7,000 deaths. In four weeks we could have over 80,000. Now taking these lockdown measures may turn out to limit COVID-19 deaths to an excess of around 20,000 deaths. That's what the chief advisers would deem a good outcome in the circumstances. On Thursday, the day I'm recording this, UK death stood at 463. So not, fortunately, the 800 we might otherwise have expected. And it's not just old people who get this. An MP who's also a... A&E Registrar was reporting on uh, her night shift over the weekend and pointing out that it is 30 and 40 year olds who are being admitted and ended up ending up in ITU with the virus. On Wednesday the death of a 21 year old female was reported. Many of us will have had it forcibly brought home to us that life is finite and we will have been prompted to consider what then? What is there post-mortem 
after death. And secondly, that has made people really start to think. And there are only three options concerning what happens after we die. Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, famously said, when I'm dead, I rot. The second option is reincarnation. But sadly, there is no evidence for it. And thirdly, there is resurrection. Recreation into a new heaven and a new earth evidenced by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It's at this point that the divine creator pops into our thinking. We know he's been there all along, but it's as if we've kept him in the loft. We've kept him in the dark and we seldom go there anyway. We've tried to forget him. But now he's making his presence felt. So we're forced to remember our mortality and consider what happens after death. Thirdly, we might even start thinking, if we had to meet him, how might we fare? Our conscience is awakened. Sins from the past, long suppressed, in the recesses of our mind, come to the fore. We know God won't like them, but what can we do? We can't get rid of them, we can't offload them. We will be called to account and found wanting. Well, what are we to do? Well, the first step is to open our eyes and face reality just as these two blind men were enabled to do. The miracle identified who Jesus was as well as illustrating what he had come to do. And no one else could do such things unless they were operating in close connection with a supernatural God. The second step would be to swallow our pride as the incident with the tiger mum showed. It is all about service and not status in God's kingdom. And the third step is to realise what Jesus has done to solve the problem. Jesus has now three times said that he must, or you could translate it, it is absolutely necessary. We may have begun to realise that, that we cannot get ourselves out of this fix. We may have even begun to realise that the situation we're facing requires us to swallow our pride, to recognise where we stand before God and to thank him for what Jesus has done for us when he suffered, died, was buried and rose again from the dead. On that cross... He satisfied God's justice. He removed our sin which contaminated our relationship with God. He liberated us from being trapped. He said the Son of Man gave his life a ransom for many. He paid the price for our freedom. But it cost him his life. 
and a period of complete abandonment from God. Earlier this week, on the 24th of March, it was the 75th anniversary of Operation Varsity, the largest airborne operation in a single day in one location in the history of warfare. 16,000 airborne forces, paratroops and glider-borne forces, half of whom were from the British 6th Airborne Division, were dropped across the River Rhine and into Germany. The purpose was to disrupt the enemy, seize the eastern bank of the Rhine and to capture three bridges across the River Eisel. So the Second Army under Montgomery could flood into northern Germany. As such, it was the last major battle of the war. uh, Germany was just weeks away from capitulation. The 6th Airborne were spearheaded by the 2nd Battalion of the Oxen Bucks, the same battalion that had been the first to be dropped on D-Day. By the third week of April, they had discovered and liberated one of the satellite camps of the infamous Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. We will have seen all those pictures of thousands of emaciated inmates, thousands dying of typhoid, cholera and malnutrition, and the mass graves involving thousands as well. A week later, these British troops met up with the Russians at Weimar and the war was ended. Those inmates were free. Many went on to a new life in Palestine. But for that one battalion, which had fought in Normandy in France, in the Ardennes in Belgium and now in Germany, that liberation came at a cost. A battalion which would have started out with eight or nine hundred men on June the 6th, 1944, had only 90 left who survived all three campaigns. Was it worth it? Undoubtedly, yes. God thought that Jesus' death, his suffering, separation from God the Father, which would have been our plight, was an effective substitution, a payment for our liberation to life. God showed that by raising him from the dead, that it worked, that it was acceptable. You might find thinking about the resurrection difficult. There are plenty of people in history, lawyers, historians, who started out thinking like that, only to discover that the evidence to support it is overwhelming. A one-time Harvard law professor, Dr Simon Greenleaf, famous for his work on the law of evidence, reckoned that there was more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus than for any other event in history. Forgiveness of sin, eternal life, is what Jesus has bought for us and now offers us. It is a free gift, but a gift we have to have humility and penitence in order to ask for. 
And when we have and put our trust in Christ for our future, then a whole brighter world opens up. Amen.